Yeah, we don't sing songs like that just kind of for a sense of nostalgia. Um, but in the church, Christmas season, the celebration of the coming of Christ, it's the biggest deal in the world, literally, because it's part of the story, the opening chapters of the story, that God became man to save his people from what they couldn't save themselves from. So we celebrate Advent, the coming of Christ because it is central to the gospel story and central to the theme of scriptures. And so we're going to be talking about that today over the next several weeks. We are, as Zach said, going to be in a brand new series called... Okay, let me... We're going to do this several times today. So ready? I'm going to point at you and you're going to say... One more time. You guys are so much smarter than the 9 a.m. service. I'm telling you, yeah. Don't tell them. Oh, wait, it's on the live stream. Don't watch that. Yeah, Okay. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, and over the next several weeks, Pastor Rod and I will be walking us through several occasions in this gospel where people were asking the question, who is this? They came in contact with Jesus and had to understand who he is. So the title of the message today is simply Hidden Identity. So let's pray and dive into God's word this morning. Father, thank you for the truth of the incarnation that Jesus came, he took on flesh so that he might die for people like us. Lord, we rejoice in this season that reminds us that the central truth in human history is that we are sinners who need a savior and we have one. So I pray our hearts and minds would be directed to the identity of Jesus today. We would see him freshly we would have a sense of amazement and wonder at who he is. Lord, hide me behind the cross of Christ by the power of your spirit through the preaching of your sacred holy word. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, I'm gonna list three names right now and you're gonna tell me what they have in common. You ready? Peter Parker. Wait, no, 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 no. <laughs> F, all of you. I'm going to list three names, then you're going to tell me what they have in common. Okay. Peter Parker, Clark Kent, Bruce Wayne. Some of you guys are like, I want to get an A. I want to get an A. Prove to my mom I'm not a failure. Yeah, um, yeah. Yes, they are aliases of superheroes. And the case in all three of these people, Superman, Batman, and Spider-Man, in the comic stories, all three of these people carefully hid their identity. And let's face it, who was not fooled by this? Who was not fooled by Clark Kent? Where's Pastor Ryan? I don't know. Oh, there he is. Yeah. I mean, the people of Metropolis must be idiots. That's all I'm saying. But let me add one more person to that list, and this one is Tony Stark. Who is that? Okay, that is the alias of Iron Man. Now, the reason I bring this up is because Peter Parker, Bruce Wayne, and Clark Kent all sought to secretly hide their identity, keep it hidden from other people, but not so much with Tony Stark. Tony Stark basically said, I am Iron Man. And here's what I want to argue this morning, that Jesus is a lot more like Iron Man than Batman. You never thought you'd hear that in a sermon, but it's true. 
what I mean by that is although Jesus' identity, his true identity as the divine son of God was not always readily apparent to everyone, it was not something that he worked very hard to hide. When people wanted to know who Jesus was, all they simply had to do was ask in one sense. They just had to look at what he said and look at what he did. Jesus was not trying to conceal his identity as the son of God. And we see that in the gospel of Mark time and time again. In fact, when people came in contact with Jesus in the gospel of Mark, repeatedly, they asked the question, Mark chapter four, verse 41, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Mark chapter 16, verse number 61. Again, the high priest questioned him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? But this question is not just one that those in the gospel of Mark or those who directly came in contact with Jesus asked. Actually, it's one of the burning questions of the whole Bible. For from the very first pages of scripture, a coming rescue is hinted at. Look at Genesis chapter three, verse number 14. So the Lord said to the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Notice this, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So if you listen to that verse, you heard the Lord pronounce that a coming rescuer would crush the head of the serpent. The natural question that you would ask is, then we jump ahead five centuries later. And the prophet Micah comes on the scene and boldly pronounces Bethlehem Ephrathah. You are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd Israel in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord, his God. They will live securely for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. And again, we ask. Then we get to the New Testament. And Jesus says and does Jesus-type things. And when you encounter Jesus saying and doing the things that only Jesus can do, the only appropriate question is, who is this? And that's what we see over and over in the gospel of Mark. People coming in contact with Jesus and saying, who is this? And our passage is one of those many examples where people are wrestling with the identity of Jesus. But this question is every bit as relevant today as it was throughout the Old Testament and during the days when the gospel of Mark was written. I would actually argue perhaps the greatest question that you could ask in your personal life is simply this, who is this? Because friends, if you miss Jesus, you miss everything. If you miss Jesus, if you don't get Jesus right, you don't get anything right. This is not an overstatement because if Jesus is who he claimed to be, then literally heaven and hell hang in the balance. If you don't understand who he is, if he really is who he claimed to be, then our eternal destiny is wrapped up in understanding rightly who is this. So my point this morning is simply this, and I would urge all of us, whether you are brand new to Christianity, if you've never picked up a Bible before, if you've never been to Gospel Hope, or if you've been here since our beginning, if you grew up in the church or you don't know what a church looks like, which would be weird because you're here this morning, 
I want to urge all of us to carefully consider that we must recognize who Jesus is. So how do we do this? Well, fortunately, we don't have to guess or speculate because as I said at the outset, throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus consistently affirmed and showed people his identity. And Mark chapter two is no exception. In this passage, several things about the character and the person of Jesus are made painfully obvious by what he says and what he does. So guess what? This morning, we are going to answer the question, who is this? And I'm gonna show you five things about the identity of Jesus. Number one, who is this? He is the welcomer of the needy. The story begins like this. When Jesus entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So after a ministry tour, Jesus was out teaching and healing and ministering in Galilee. He comes back to Capernaum, where apparently at this stage in his earthly ministry, he is leaving or living, I'm sorry. And so some people find out that Jesus has arrived home. He's gotten back to his house. And what happens? Mark chapter two, verse number two. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. So here Jesus gets home from this tour He's probably worn out. I don't know if he's gotten a shower yet. I don't know what's going on. He walks into the house and what happens? People start flocking to him, just gathering to him so much for so that you can't even get in the doorway of the house. What does Jesus do? Does he send them away because they're invading his privacy? Does he tell them that he's too tired? He's too busy? They're inconvenient? No. Instead, Mark 2, verse number two, he was speaking the word to them. This small detail reminds us of something profound about the identity of Jesus. Namely, he's not aloof. He's not unapproachable. He does not view people as tiresome or inconvenient. He's not put out by our neediness. Rather, he invites us to come with, to him with our need. And this is Jesus' constant MO. This is not an isolated instance Matthew chapter 11, verse number 28. Come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You needy folk, you folk that are worn out, you, you the ones that don't have stuff to offer, you're the ones I want to come to me. Or again, Mark chapter 10, verse 14. Let the little children come, people that don't have anything to bring to him. Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them. Why? Because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. It's in this, as if Jesus is saying, you bring me my needy, your neediness and I will bless you. Your inadequacy is an experience or an opportunity to experience my adequacy. To put it simply to Jesus, people are priority. People are priority to Jesus. Here's the implication. No matter how inconvenient you feel, ever felt inconvenient before? No matter how needy you are, notice I didn't say feel there, how needy you are. Anybody got needs in this room? Anybody feel a little broke down? Anybody feel like you don't have much to offer anyone? No matter how needy you are, no matter how many times you have come before, Lord, here I am again. I was here five minutes ago and here I am again. And probably five minutes from now, guess what? I'll need some more help. Lord, here I am. No matter any of those things, you matter to Jesus. <laughs> if I could use a bit of an analogy, 
the arms of the Savior are not in this posture. Jesus kind of like 7-Eleven. His arms are always open. <laughs> he wants to embrace you. He says, come to me. Come to me with all of your neediness, with all of your broke downness, with all of your hurt, with all of your baggage, with all of your skeletons and all of your closets. Bring them to me because I am the welcomer of the needy in a time when it is easy to feel like a failure, right? This season makes everybody feel like things are not going as they should. I, I wake up every morning and say, ma'am, what did I mess up yesterday? There's this low-grade anxiety and frustration that is just running amok in our society. You know what's good news for all of us? Our Savior is not easily disappointed. Come on. You're not a disappointment to me. Come to me when you're laden, when you're burdened, when you're needy. That is the exact type of people that Jesus received. Number two, Jesus is not just the welcomer of the needy. He is the forgiver of sins. As the story unfolds, we learn that Christ's welcome is as deep as it is wide. Look what happens next. Verse number three, they came to him, bringing him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. So apparently, Jesus' reputation for healing was well known. So much so that many folks flocked to Jesus the day, that day in, in the hopes that their paralyzed friend would be healed. So since the house was so crowded that the friends made a hole in the roof and lowered the paralyzed man in front of Jesus. Fortunately for this man, he had some determined and some creative friends, right? I mean, they were not easily deterred. So they show up here and you can imagine the scene. So there's Jesus. He's in a crowded house. I mean, it's packed. There's no way into the house. So the friends say, okay, let's take this dude up on the roof. So up they go and Jesus is teaching and, and here's all the crowd and you, you start to see some like, you know, debris falling from the ceiling. And people are like, they're not paying attention to Jesus anymore because even back then that's what they did. You know, you don't pay attention if, if something happens off stage. Stuff falling down and then all of a sudden a hole in the roof opens up and these men somehow rig some sort of contraption. Maybe they were Georgia Tech graduates, you know, I don't know. They dropped him down in there. They get him in the middle. And here, right in the midst of this crowded house, here's a paralyzed man laying on a mat. And everybody's like, well, what, what, this is interesting. What's he going to do? What's he going to do about this? So what does he do? Listen, he does something that no one in the room expects. Not even the paralyzed man. Look at what it says. Mark chapter 2, verse number 5. Seeing their faith... Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, wait a minute. This man did not come to have his sins forgiven. The friends did not bring him to Jesus to get his sins forgiven. They brought him to Jesus to get healed. So why on earth... In this moment, would Jesus pronounce forgiveness when the man really wanted healing? I think this is the key to understanding this whole story. I think the reason that Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, before he said, get up, take up your mat, and walk, is because he was making a point 
about the relative severity of sin and sickness. Jesus was making a point about the relative severity of sin and the relative severity of sickness. Let me explain. It seems to me, if I could paraphrase the Savior by his actions, that Jesus would be saying something like this. Friend, I know your paralysis is real. And I know that it's painful. But I want to tell you something. Paralysis is not your greatest need. You need forgiveness far more. Because although paralysis will harm you in this life, sin will harm you in the life to come. And in all of his teaching, Jesus regularly sounded this note. Mark chapter nine, verse 43. If your hand causes you to fall away or sin, cut it off. For it is better that you enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell. Or Matthew chapter 10, verse number 28. Don't fear those who kill the body, but aren't able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Here's the principle. Listen very carefully. Jesus came to meet our profoundest need, not just our perceived ones. Jesus came to meet our profoundest need, not just our perceived ones. But when Jesus pronounced this man forgiven, it elicited quite the response. Mark chapter two, verse number six, again, but some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, scribes during this time were experts in the Old Testament scriptures. And they were outraged by Jesus' statement because they rightly understood, according to the Bible, that the only person who can forgive sins is God. We read this time and time again in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 32, verse number two. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity? Jeremiah 31, 34, this is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sins. So the scribes were absolutely right. They were theologically accurate in believing that only God had the right to forgive sins. Only the Lord himself could say, your sins are forgiven, but they got something wrong. They missed the identity of the person standing right in front of them. So the scribes were both right and wrong because they understood what God could do. They didn't understand who God was. And that, that brings us to the, five, the next thing. Number three, Jesus is the knower of hearts. This is where Jesus begins to say, okay, you're right in your theology, but let me reveal a little bit more of my character in this moment. Before the scribes get a chance to uh, utter their objections. Here's what Jesus does. He heads them off. Mark chapter two, verse number eight. Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your heart? They hadn't said anything out loud, but Jesus knew their thoughts. In this moment, Jesus is exercising his divine omniscience, his knowledge of all things and peering into the hearts of his opponents. As it says in Hebrews, no creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 
Or to put it plainly, the son of God knows the hearts of man. Now, at one level, this is a terrifying reality, right? Like when you stop and think about this reality that God, Jesus Christ, knows everything about you. And when I say everything, I mean everything. He knows all your secrets. He knows all your failures. He knows all the things that you've said and thought and done. And he knows all the things that has been done to you. He knows it all. And in one sense, that is a deeply sobering reality. Christ knows me to my core. But along with the knowledge of Christ being sobering, it is also a deep source of comfort. Because here's the thing. Even though Jesus knows every intimate detail of your life, even though there is nothing hidden from you, from him, Jesus knows us fully and loves us deeply. In spite of the fact that Jesus knows everything there is to know about you, even the things that you yourself don't even like to think about, he still came to earth and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died and rose victoriously on our behalf. Jesus knows you fully, and if I could say, he loves you anyway. I want to remind all of us that Jesus came knowing what he was getting himself into so that he could pronounce over people like you and me, your sins are forgiven. I know all about them. You're not fooling me. I, I don't have some false perception of you. I know exactly what you are. And your sins are forgiven. Look, listen to this statement. No brokenness in you can separate you from the grace that is in Christ. There's no one too far gone. There's no sinner that is too bad. There's no person that is too wounded. There's no one that's too broken. No brokenness in you is greater than the grace that is in Christ. And we see that, number four, he is the healer of diseases. Next, in another bold stroke, Jesus further substantiates his identity by posing a rather provocative question. Look at Mark chapter 2, verse number 9, and put your theological thinking caps on for me, boys and girls. Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk? Okay. So, really, I want us to stop and think about this. Which is easier to say? You notice how Jesus said that there. He doesn't say which is easier to do. He says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? What's the answer? Your sins are forgiven. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because I can go around the room all day long. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And nobody can disprove me. Why? Because it's invisible. You can't see when somebody's sins are forgiven. Nothing visible happens in that moment. So then Jesus says, okay, so I'll one up. He kind of takes his chips and pushes them all in. All right. All right. You say anybody can say that? Can anybody say this? Arise, 
take up your mat and walk. And guess what happens? The man does. Yes, amen. That is correct. Arise, take up your mat and walk. And why does Jesus do it? To be sure, to be sure. Jesus was extending compassion to this man. There's no question about it. Jesus is showing mercy to the paralytic man. But ultimately, the reason that Jesus did this miracle is to substantiate his invisible miracle with a visible one. In other words, Jesus says it, and look at what it says in verse 10, but so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Arise, take up your mat and walk. Though this healing was unquestionably an act of great compassion, ultimately it was an act of divinity. Jesus was essentially saying, now top that. Here's who I am so that you may know that I can say your sins are forgiven. Let me do something that you can see with, the, with your eyes. Finally, number five, Jesus is the son of man. Look at verse number 11 again, 10 and 11. But so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, now to us, that title son of man might, might not be like super meaningful. But to Jewish folks who were familiar with the Old Testament, this title of son of man would have been both familiar and loaded with theological freight. So when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, he is referring to himself as a particular person from Jewish prophecy. Look at Daniel chapter seven, verse number 13. Here's what it says. Suddenly, one like a son of man. See the phrase right there? was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and he was escorted before them. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people and nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Yeah. To put it simply, the son of man is the promised king. Remember all of these prophecies back here. Where it's saying, hey, there's coming a snake-crushing rescuer. Who is this? It's me. Remember Daniel's prophecy or, or, or De, uh, the prophet Micah's prophecy. Hey, there's coming somebody from the line of David who will be born in Bethlehem. He will be the king for which you long for. And Jesus is like, hey, guess who? It's me. I am the son of man. I am the king of kings. I am the Lord of lords. You are looking for your divine rescuer. Look no further. It is as if in the statement, Jesus is saying, in case you're not used to too much subtlety and didn't pick up what I was saying, I'm God. I am God. You're right. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And you're looking at him so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Arise, take up your mat and walk. So what should we do with this breathtaking portrait of the identity of Jesus? I want to urge you to do something a little bit unusual this morning. 
let's maybe take our clues from the paralytic. In this story, I think we should all kind of view ourselves on that mat. Two things, simply this. First thing is this, come to Jesus. When we truly see who Jesus is, it reminds us that no matter how broken down we are, he will receive us. Listen, the paralytic man didn't even have the strength to come to Jesus on his own. He had to be carried to get there. And I think that's a parable for all of us. Man, you may feel weak. You may feel needy. You may feel completely inadequate. But I would urge you to come to the Savior this morning. Bring your brokenness. Bring your weakness. Bring yourself to him. Crawl if you have to. Drag yourself if you have to. Beg someone to help you get there if you have to. But he is inviting you this morning to come to him. No matter how sinful you feel. No matter how far you've wandered. No matter how long it's been. No matter how many times you have failed. My encouragement to you is to come to Jesus. He sees you. He knows you. He wants you. There is no brokenness beyond the power of the Savior's healing. So what I want to invite you to do this morning is simply this. Will you take a moment and bring your brokenness to the Lord? I'm actually going to give you a moment to reflect on that quietly this morning. Where are you broken? Where are you sinful? Will you take that to Jesus right now and let him receive you this morning? Quietly take a minute and talk to God about your own brokenness this morning. Father, we are sinners in need of a Savior. We are sick people in need of a physician, so we come to you right now. We come and we know that your arms are open wide. We bring our brokenness to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark recruit, records a very interesting detail as soon as this miracle happens. Look at what it says. Mark chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. Notice that when this man was made whole, he immediately listened to Jesus' command. That's the second thing. Come to Jesus with your brokenness and listen to Jesus this morning. Friends, if you see Jesus clearly, you will recognize him as not only savior, rescuer, you will recognize him as king. That is, he not only rescues us, but he commands our allegiance. And here's the kicker. When Jesus saves, he also strengthens. Well, that's a good word for us all. 
like before Jesus intervened in this paralytic man's life, if he said, rise and take up your bed and go home, there was nothing this man could do to do it. But when Jesus spoke to him and rescued him, immediately in that saving was the ability to do what Jesus had called him to do. And that is true for all of us this morning. If you have been rescued by the Lord, you have also been empowered by the Lord to do all that he is calling you to do. So I would urge you this morning, begin to consider, okay, Lord, I bring to you my brokenness. Now, where do you want me to go? Aye, aye, Captain. You are my Lord. You are my master. You are my king. And I will follow you wherever you call. In this Christmas season, with all the busyness and festivities, all good things, it can be tempting and easy to forget that our highest allegiance is not to a fat guy in a suit or even to our family or to some sort of agenda that our culture has. We have been saved and forgiven to follow our king. He owns our allegiance and we must follow him this morning. So my question for all of us is simply these. What is your king calling you to do? And are you listening to his voice? Have you said, Lord, my yes is on the table. You just put me on the map. You tell me what to do, I will do it. I am all in because I know that when you save, you strengthen. You enable us to do all that you have called us to do. So I want to just a moment, I have you talk to the Lord about that as well. You just pause and have a conversation with God. Lord, what are you calling me to do? Help me to do it. Let's talk to God right now. What is God calling you to do? Listen to his voice. Lord, help us to listen to your voice. You are our king. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now here's the incredible thing. When those present saw what happened, something amazing occurred. Look at what it says, verse 12. And they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Listen, if, if Jesus has forgiven you, you are well aware that you are a living, breathing miracle, right? And you sit in a room of living, breathing miracles. People with no strength and no power on their own who have been rescued by Jesus and made alive, resurrected from the dead and given strength in their limbs that were once powerless to follow him. That is amazing. But if we have been forgiven, then if we begin to follow the Lord, maybe, just maybe, the world would begin to look at us and say, we've never seen anything like this before. Are you living in such a way 
that you have been so radically transformed by the Savior, forgiven and empowered so that people look and say, I've never seen anything like this before. And they glorify God. Oh, would to God that this whole room would be filled with people whose lives are so transformed by the work of Jesus. They've been so gripped by the identity of the Savior that they live such transformed life that our community, that Avondale and Decatur and Clarkston and all around the city of Atlanta would say, we have never seen anything like this before. Friends, when you have been gripped by the identity of Jesus, you have been forgiven to follow. That is our calling in life right now. You have been forgiven to follow. So who is this who commands our allegiance? He is the welcomer of the needy. He is the forgiver of sins. He is the knower of hearts. He is the healer of diseases. He is the son of man. He is our savior and rescuer and master and king. So look again at him and follow him this morning so that the world may know we have never seen anything like this before. Who is this? He is our Jesus. Let's get on our feet and worship him for the great mercy and grace that he has extended to us. Oh Lord, give us eyes to see. And may it not just be a moment on Sunday morning, but throughout this week and throughout this season and throughout this lives, Remove the scales from our eyes that would cause us to focus on lesser things. Help us see the mercy of Jesus is greater than all our sins. You are our king and we will follow you. In Christ we pray, amen.